Yeah, we're in Acts 28, and it's the last chapter. And there might be a sense in which you wonder, like, okay, but like, what happens next? Because I'm not done hearing about Paul yet. I'm not done hearing about Peter yet. And um, the truth is that the story's not over. And if you want to know what happens next in this story, look at your own life. Because that's what happens next. So today, the title is Following Christ in the 29th chapter of Acts. So today has been 456 days since we started the book of Acts. It's been a year and three months. And today we come to the end of the book, and we're getting close to the end of Paul's story. We do know um, from First and Second Timothy and from Titus when Paul is writing letters, we do know a little bit about what happens after this chapter. We know that he gets released from prison for a little bit of time, and we know that he gets to do some more missionary work, and then he's imprisoned again under Nero. And then you can read some early church writings of the church fathers that are after the New Testament, but in the early times where tradition has it that Paul was condemned to die by Nero, by a beheading in Italy probably, and Peter also was crucified. Um, so these apostles, they all died. They were all martyrs except for John who lived and probably died on the island of Patmos. So we do kind of know what happens to Paul a little bit after this point. But at least today in the 28th chapter of Acts, we're going to read the end of what Luke has to say about Paul. So let's just read the whole chapter together, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So Acts 28, verse 1. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god. Okay. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him, and he healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people of the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which wasn't the same from before because the one before broke. We saw that last week. Which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. 
I'm not going to pronounce these things right. Just deal with it. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And, it, and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the mar market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers, uh, sorry, with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. <clears throat> they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. <clears throat> when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. From both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening, a long service. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Not could not, would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and, as, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this final chapter of Acts. I pray that you would open our eyes now and our hearts to receive it and to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what I want to do with this final chapter is really answer a simple question. What's next? What happens in Acts chapter 29? God's work is not done yet. And so what I want to do is look at the life of Paul in this chapter, in 28, and basically look at four different things we can do to be part of Acts chapter 29 today. So the first point is going to be trust God for everything. Point number two is going to be find joy in serving others. Point number three is going to be embrace moments of encouragement. 
And point number four, I'm going to repeat all of them as we go along, so don't get stressed out. Point number four is, join the mission of God where you are. Okay, so point number one, trust God for everything. We're looking here at this first part of the story where Paul gets bitten by a snake, and he shakes it off, and it was apparently a poisonous snake because the island expected him to die, and he didn't die. This is an obvious fulfillment of what Jesus said. In Mark 16, verse 17 through 18, he said, These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. It's also similar to what Jesus had said when he sent out the 70 in Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, nothing will injure you. So Sam, would you mind getting the box in the kitchen? We've got some snakes, we're going to... What? Just kidding. <laughs> Isn't it unfortunate that some people take verses like this that are a little bit obscure, and what they do is they wrongly interpret it, and not only that, they make that the main part of their Christianity, a bad interpretation of something. So these verses don't say, whenever you come together to worship, bring snakes and hold them, and if they bite you, you didn't have enough faith. But there are churches that do that that falsely understand these verses and do that. In fact, um, the National Geographic Channel had a reality television show called Snake Salvation that was documenting churches that do this. One of the pastors on that show has since passed away because he got bitten by a snake and he died. I'm not going to give his name because I believe... Yeah, yeah. So this happens sometimes. We falsely interpret things. What Jesus isn't saying in Mark 16 or in Luke 17 is, go find a snake and hold it. And if it bites you, you didn't have enough faith. In fact, if you read about what the early church did, what Jesus did, what the apostles did, what the early church did, they weren't going around handling snakes on purpose. That's not what happened. What they were doing is going around sharing the gospel. There's only one reason why this snake didn't kill Paul. Can you guess what it is? It wasn't. Paul's time to die? Yes! Correct! <laughs> you might remember from Acts 27, verse 23. Acts 27, verse 23. Paul said, This very night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me saying, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So they were in the ship. There was a storm. They were all afraid of their lives. And God says to Paul, You're not going to die yet because I have work for you to do in Rome. You can't die yet. That's why the snake that's poisonous doesn't kill Paul in this moment. It's not because Paul had more faith than us. It's not because... We should all be handling snakes today. It's because in that moment, God decided, Paul, it's not your time. I've got work for you to do in Rome, so it's not your time to die yet. God wasn't done using Paul. God still had a purpose for Paul. And when you're in God's will, this is a theme we've seen over and over again in Acts. When you're in God's will, and you're doing what God wants you, know, you to do, and you're trying to be obedient to Him... You're part of a bigger plan than you see. You're part of a plan 
that God has planned from the beginning before anything was ever created, and it will last for eternity. We're in those moments, we're in that plan. We don't see the whole picture, but when you're following God and you're obedient to Him, you're invincible against anything coming against God's will. That's one of the main themes of Acts. It doesn't mean nothing bad ever happens. It means that whatever does happen that's bad, it is part of a bigger plan that one day we will all understand. So, if you're alive, it's because He has work for you to do. That's why we're all still here. That's why He hasn't returned yet. That's why the world hasn't ended yet. There's still work to do. And when bad things happen, like being stoned to death like Stephen, being shipwrecked like Paul, or being ill, or being bitten by a snake... It's because God allowed that to happen and it's part of a bigger, bigger plan. You know, in the present moment, we don't always get to see how the effects of suffering are part of that bigger plan. Like Stephen getting stoned to death in that moment might not have realized how that was contributing to the larger plan of God, right? He probably didn't see that picture. But we can look at stories like this of Paul being bitten by a snake and find a hope. How can we look at a snake biting Paul and find hope? Because if a deadly snake can bite Paul and he doesn't die, it means that God can keep us from any and all harm at all times. He can. It means that if we are not kept from harm, there's a reason. And even if we don't understand that reason, now we might understand it and we will understand it eventually. We'll look back on this life from eternity's perspective and eventually it will all make sense. That's the promise that God has for us. And so it's sometimes easy in my position as a teacher to look at verses like this and like kind of brush over it quickly and hope you all don't recognize, you know, and like let's just avoid the snake biting verse and, you know, let's just not talk about that and go back to the easy stuff. But I feel like my duty as a teacher of the Word of God is to draw out these the, the, the deeper truths of these verses and say it's not about handling snakes. It's about trusting God in the hard times that even when you get bitten by a snake or even when something horrible happens to you or even when you don't understand what's happening to you, there's a bigger picture of God's plan and nothing bad will happen to you that's outside of that. You might sometimes think it's a hard pill to swallow, especially when something bad happens and you're like, you're telling me God wanted that to happen to me? I can't follow a God like that. But imagine the alternative. Imagine a God who can't intervene in your life. Imagine a God who doesn't have full control. How could you trust any of God's promises if none of them can be guaranteed because God doesn't really have control? He's not really sovereign. How could you trust a God like that? So like in Romans when Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar, that's how I feel. It's like, I'm going to trust God anyway even when I don't get the whole picture because if I'm going to give up that doctrine, if I'm going to give up the idea that God's in control, if I'm going to give up the idea that God can keep me from all harm, if I'm going to give that up, it means I start to question, what can I trust about anything? If any of God's promises, if they're all dependent on me, if I can make any of those promises not come true through my actions, or if man can intervene and get in the way of God's will, then what, what kind of promises can I trust? So in this lesson of the snake biting Paul, the, the bigger truth here is that God was sovereign even in the snake bite. And if, you know, if, if God's plan for Paul was done, he could have allowed that poison to kill Paul and Paul would have gone to heaven. That would have been great too. Paul's like, great. Hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't care what happens to me. I'm serving God. So Paul would have been okay with that. The reason why he didn't die wasn't because of his faith. It was because God wasn't done with him yet. 
Okay, that's the first point as far as what does Acts 29 look like? It's trusting God in everything, in the good times and the bad times. Point number two was find joy in serving others. Starting in verse 7, we see this crazy thing happening where Paul is a prisoner, he's on this island, the kind of ruler of this island, not really a king, it's too small of an island to have that kind of structure, but this guy owns a lot of land, he's kind of in charge there, he invites this big old crowd of hundreds of people and he's kind of entertaining them for days. And um, so Paul prays over this leader's father, heals him. Suddenly everyone from the island starts coming out to get prayer and Paul's healing all these people. This is a tremendous time of ministry for Paul. But remember, Paul at this time is still a prisoner in chains on his way to Rome where he awaits sudden, certain death eventually. That's what he's thinking at least. He's a prisoner. And yet in this time, he's others focused. And I really want to take a moment to stop and help you to realize the hardest thing for Paul about this situation. You might think this is great. Wouldn't it be great to be Paul healing hundreds of people? All you got to do is ask and God's healed. Wouldn't that be great? Until you recognize and remember 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, I have a thorn in my flesh that is buffeting me, a messenger of Satan. And then he says, I asked God three times to remove it from me. Whatever this infirmity was, whatever this physical weakness was, Paul's like, I asked God three times to remove it from me. And God didn't do it. How do you deal with that? Imagine you're Paul, and hundreds are coming to you for healing. And all you got to do is put your hand on them and God, I ask that you would, you know, if it's your will, if you would just heal them. Boom, they're healed. Hundreds of people getting healed. And yet God is denying your request to be healed. How do you deal with that? This is what we see in the life of Paul in this chapter. What we see in him being able to go to an island and pray and heal hundreds of people and preach the gospel without shame and with full confidence while he himself is not being healed that's the result of victory won in prayer. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So the reason why Paul, while being a prisoner, while being shackled, while being shipwrecked and hungry and almost dying many times, and having this physical weakness that he hasn't been healed from, the reason why he's still serving others is because God gave him an answer. The answer was no, but it was an answer. And then he said, Paul, I'm doing this because when you serve me when you're weak, you show me to be strong in you and it's a testimony to me and it'll bring more people to Christ than if I just healed you and then life was good. That's what Paul had to learn. So Paul decided that if this suffering is part of God's will, even if he couldn't understand it, he was going to believe that it was making him stronger. He was going to believe that it was part of a bigger plan of God and that God's power was being displayed in his weakness. And so he accepted it. And not only that, he began to rejoice in it. 
most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities. So he's boasting, he's glad, he takes pleasure. So the second point in what it looks like living in this final chapter of Acts 29 is to find joy in serving others. And that can only happen when you recognize the sovereignty of God and that even if like in good times and in bad times and all of that you recognize I'm part of a bigger picture here. I'm submitting myself to God's will. Whatever happens to me, happens to me. I can certainly keep asking for God's help in my times of trial, but if he decides to keep me in this moment, it's because it's part of some bigger plan that I don't understand, and I'm not going to give up, and I'm not going to give in, and I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep serving him and serving others. So point two is find joy in serving others. Point number three that we see in Paul's life here is embrace moments of encouragement. You know, we saw starting in verse 11, they sail on the ship and they arrive at Syracuse. They sail for three days and as they sail around and eventually they get to this place that I can't pronounce correctly, Puteoli or something. But they found some brethren there and we were invited to stay with them for seven days in verse 14. And so they had this pause. They go to this island and from there they're sailing and before they get to Rome, they have this pause, this moment where they find some believers, and they get to spend seven days with them. You know, along the way, as we serve God, we go through trials. And sometimes those trials last a long time. But in the midst of those trials, we might still have moments of pleasure, little momentary joys. And it might be as simple as like stopping at the pharmacy and buying a Snickers bar on the way home and just having that Snickers, and that's your moment of joy. But we get these little moments along the way in our stressful moments and I think what we can learn from Paul here is stop and smell the roses. Embrace these moments of encouragement because we might have suffering for a long time. It might be momentary. It might be a long time. But what happens sometimes is in our moment of trial, something good happens. And we can't even recognize it because we're still anxious about what's coming next. And it's hard to stop for a second and appreciate any of the good along the way because it's just clouded and surrounded by bad everywhere else. Take a moment. Stop and smell the roses. Because these moments in our life, it's kind of like God saying, you're in my will. This is part of my plan. But I see that it's hard for you. And I want you to know that I see you. That I know you. That I love you. That I care. I haven't forgotten you. I care about you. So this is my moment just reminding you of that. That you're still in this time. It's still going to be hard for a bit. But here's a moment. Just so you remember. Just take it in. I see you. I know you. It might get hard again in a second. But for this moment, let's just stop and just have this moment together. So mark those moments. And also look back on them when things get hard. Remember what God's done along the way. Remember the victories. Even the small ones. Remember those. That's what we see from these these. Guys in the Old Testament, that when God did something, they'd set up an altar. That was so they could go back later and remember. So have these mental altars in your mind of when God gives you a small victory, even if it's in the midst of much larger trials, remember those. Remind yourself of those. Remind you of the times that God has been there and done things. It'll give you hope. Okay, so then we see in verse 17, they come to Rome which is tremendous. How long have we been talking about this? Paul wanted to go to Rome forever. Now he's there. It's awesome. And so he meets with these Jews. He's kind of summarizing how he got there. The Jews didn't really know who he was, but they listened to him, and they don't believe him. And then he kind of ends it 
sort of the way Jesus ended it in like John, I think it was the end of John 11 or in the beginning of John 12, when he's said it all, he's done it all, and they would not believe anyway. So Paul's kind of repeating that here. And then he spoke those words and the Jews depart. And uh, that's kind of the end of Paul's story. But we have one more thing we can learn from this. So the fourth point is join the mission of God where you are. Because what Paul says here to the Jews, I strongly believe applies to Christians in the South today. And I think we need to really pay attention to it because we're living here. And this is where we are. So if you're a real believer, this is your mission field until God calls you somewhere else. The South is a hard place to be a Christian. I just want to read this again, starting in verse 26. Go to this people and say, you'll keep on hearing but not understand. You'll keep on seeing but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. To many people in the South, living here, growing up here, Christianity is kind of like Judaism back in this time. Back in that time, a Jew would grow up Jewish. They'd grow up hearing the scripture, probably even believing it was true and believing they had to do certain things. They were surrounded by all this truth. They heard it all their life. But when the real Messiah showed up and revealed from scripture he was who he said he was, they couldn't accept it. That's because they knew it all. They'd heard it all, but it hadn't ever entered their heart. There were some Jews that did follow Jesus, and it was pretty hard for them. Those were like the Nicodemuses that were coming at night to ask Jesus more follow-up questions. There were Jews that did believe in Jesus, but for the most part, they didn't. And there are many so-called Christians in the South today, and I'm convinced there are fewer real Christians, and it's just the nature of living in a place where part of the culture is going to church. That's just what you do. I was talking to my friend this week. He lives in Michigan now. They're still trying to find a church. It's been a little while, so I'm like, keep like getting on. I'm like, you got to find a church. You got to get somewhere. It's like the problem is like, the, the, I guess there's the same. Um, but he finds that like back in our group in California, our church in California, he said the difference wasn't California. It wasn't cool to be a Christian. It's a very liberal state, and so it's not like everyone in California grows up think, well, this is what you do. You go to church. Not everybody has that. So you go to high school, and you're going to meet tons of kids that don't go to church because. Many people don't go to church. I mean, there are a lot of churches, a lot of big churches, but it's not the culture there like, this is what you do, you go to church. Whereas here, what we're facing is a culture where everybody goes to church. And if you don't, like, what's wrong with you? Even from a, like a, just a cultural, secular perspective, unless you're living in a more liberal city, in the major, majority of places, people are going to church on Sunday. You don't mow your lawn in the mornings because your neighbors will judge you because you should be in church. Like, there's these mental things that happen here living in the South about, like, what it's like to be a Christian here. And the thing is, what happens is, in this culture, if you go to church, this is what you do. You learn to say the right things, to do the right things, to live the right way, but you have all these people that are in all these churches, but they're not there for the right reasons. And so these churches end up getting exhausted because what happens is, if you feel like you're supposed to be in church, but you don't like church, at least let it be comfortable. At least let there be things that I like, nice cushioned chairs, the coffee and the cake, the greeters that make you feel good when you walk in, all the programs that I need, all the extracurricular events to keep me satisfied throughout the week. And so churches end up getting exhausted trying to entertain and keep the people happy that don't even want to really be there. They're just kind of like, 
culturally feeling forced to be there. And then what happens is you have real believers that go from church to church because they hunger for God, they crave for God, and they continue to find that these churches can't take them deeper because they're overwhelmed with a larger majority of people that are just like taking up all their time doing stuff like you know extra programs and all that. So it's really hard to make things work that way here. And so for churches to, to win this scenario, it's like, okay, you've got to have the most comfortable environment, the most programs, the best music, the best speaker, the best technology, all the most recent things, get the light show going. And like the thing is like, most people end up kind of chasing the newest thing because they're trying to get entertained. You know, like you go to church, but it's like, I get bored of that speaker, or I get bored of that thing, or I have to keep playing the same songs over and over again, so I'm going to do the other thing. Um, and then they go to these churches, and it's like, okay, I'm going to sit in the back, though. I'm going to sit in the shadows so that you don't see me, and don't try to talk to me afterwards. Don't try to get me connected and, like, integrated. Don't, don't try to, like, make me meet you for coffee. I just want to get in and get out and then go on with my week the way I want to. And the, the thing is, though, God actually wants us to know him, like for real. There's actually a real God out there who really did send his son, really did give us this book to read, and he actually really wants us to know him. And so many that have grown up in church here, they've gotten so used to this idea that, well, church is just what you do, and yeah, I believe these things. You give your little nod to it, you know, put your money in the plate and move on, and then just live your life. But Christianity is a real thing. So, um, because church is so exhausted, focused on keeping people happy that don't want to be there, when someone comes along who really wants to grow in their faith, oftentimes they're the ones who feel alienated. So, listen, if you understand this, and if you really are a believer, and you really do know God, and you're living in the South, this is the part of the story you play. The part of the story you play, your Acts 29, is living in a mission field where you have to find ways to show the difference between real Christianity and fake Christianity. And the culture here has grown up with, um, well, they've grown up hearing the right things, but oftentimes not really seeing it lived out the right way, but they can catch a fake. Do you know what I mean when I say car salesman faith? Does that term make sense to you? The kind of people that just, they know how to act and they know how to smile. They know how to say the right Christian words and know how to do the right thing. But it's almost like they're selling you something. And then you get to know them and they're really not living different than anybody else. They're really not going out of their way sacrificially for anybody. There's really no evidence of a deeper thing going on. It's just like, it's just car salesman faith. The culture here knows that and unfortunately a lot of believers think that's what it is. That's what Christianity is. So a lot of guys, they just stopped going to church because why? They've, they've been there. They've done that. So our Acts 29 is figuring out in this culture how to live in a way that says, no, there's something real. It's a real faith. It's a real Christianity. There's really a God. You know, living here 10 years, it's just about 10 years for us. Coming from California, coming here, it's, it sometimes feels like you're taking a pebble and you're trying to break a brick wall and it's never going to break through when you tend to go from church to church and you're trying to meet people that have real faith, but as you get to know them, you want to like open up and share and it just feels like there's this wall suddenly. There's this point they don't go beyond where it's like, don't, don't talk to me about giving up this. Don't talk to me about doing that. You know, I'm happy just going on Sunday and having my whole life the rest of the week. 
That's our mission field. So the challenge we face is living out the gospel to a culture that already knows it, but their hearts have grown dull. And they've gotten really good at faking it. So I do feel like what Paul was saying to the Jews at that time about their own scripture is kind of like how it is here. You begin talking about your faith to people, and oftentimes with the Christians, they grow dull. It's like they, yeah, you know, they can, yeah, it's kind of cool, you know, and they can maybe quote some things, say some things, but it's like, yeah, but do you really, really know him? Is it really like changing your life on the inside? And the thing is, I think this church, because I know all of you in here, I feel like all of you have it. All of you know him. You have a real thing. And so I'm confident that this message for you is more of like a get on the mission, not a do you really know him. It's like, no, you know him, but you're living in a culture that for the most part doesn't, but thinks they do. So the challenge we face as a church is join the mission of God where you are and the South is where we are. And how do we do that? It's not going to cut it just to invite people to church. That's great. Invite them here. If they'll come, fine. But just know, if they're not going to a church, they've already been invited by 20 of their friends this week. So they're getting that. Oh yeah, come to my church. That's a great thing. What I think they need to see is this gospel lived out. It's like Paul in chains with a physical infirmary that God has not healed him from going around preaching a gospel of freedom while he's in chains and healing others while he's sick. It's a gospel that says, I don't care what happens to me. I care more about you than me. I care more about God than me. I don't care about my suffering anymore. I want to make sure that you're safe. It's a gospel that says, this thing really matters to me. I'm not faking it. And that takes a long time. So really, being on a mission here in the South is kind of a relational, kind of a long-term thing, I think. It's not going to be very often the kind of thing where you go on the street, you find someone who's never heard of Jesus, you preach the gospel, they get saved, and they start getting discipled and growing up, and in two years, they're ready to plant their own church. No, people here have been hearing this stuff forever, but they need to see the long term, like what it means to be a Christian for the long term, through the trials, through the hardships, showing that these words come alive when you apply them to your heart and you live them out. And that's, I think, the kind of evangelism and the kind of gospel-centered living we need to have. That's our Acts 29. It's living this stuff out, joining the mission of God where we are. So the book ends here, but it doesn't really end because we're living it today. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for um, this book of Acts. What an amazing book it's been. I pray you'd uh, continue to Help us to follow you, Lord, and um, to make this book a reality of how we live today. Help us to be part of your story. Help us to be closer to you and, and stronger for you and to live the kind of lives that really show a difference, especially among the Christian, cultural, non-saved people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen.